Tēnā My name is Will Appleby, and this is Animal Matters. On today's show, hundreds of thousands of calf corpses could be left uncollected on dairy farms across the country. Is it a crisis, or an uncomfortable truth that the industry is failing to address? We also chat with Melanie Joy, the founding president of the charitable organisation Beyond Carnism. What is Carnism, and what are its implications? We discuss this and more. Animal Matters is brought to you by Safe for Animals, New Zealand's leading animal rights organisation. As always, we're here to open up for discussion the key issues facing animals. We bring you the latest news and commentary every fortnight with a focus on the exploitation of animals. Animal Matters is also on Patreon. You can support the show by heading to patreon.com forward slash animal matters. Patrons can unlock bonus content and get early access to new episodes before they're released. After 102 days, we have our first cases of COVID-19 outside of a managed isolation or quarantine facility in New Zealand. (sighs) Well, I suppose it was inevitable, wasn't it? Many others in New Zealand, like myself, would have rushed at their phone to stream this unscheduled press conference at 9pm last Tuesday, where the Prime Minister announced that Auckland would be moving to Alert Level 3 and the rest of the country into Alert Level 2. These restrictions will now remain in place until August 12. Tempers will be frayed at this time. It's easy to despair, but I think it's important now that we focus on what's at hand and do our best to stamp out this virus. Practice good social distancing, wash your hands, and wear a mask when you leave the house. If you're having a tough time, please reach out to those close to you for support. While we're now staring down another stint in partial lockdown, it makes it a lot more challenging for those of us who care about animals to advocate on their behalf. Those of us not deeply entrenched in the day-to-day animal rights activism will likely be distracted from the issues we're trying to highlight. An example that demonstrates this, the number of news articles published each day that commented on the kinds of issues we advocate dropped off a cliff following the announcement last week that we once again have community transmission. The same thing happened earlier this year when we first went into lockdown. By the way, you might be able to hear there's currently a cat outside the studio door trying to get in. It's easy at this time to feel like people don't care about animals, or only care when they can afford to be less selfish. I think this opinion is far too rash though. People are scared. They'll be worried about their jobs, their family, their future. An upcoming election further complicates things, which is now being delayed by four weeks. No doubt the political reporters have their work cut out for them right now. It's important that we continue to advocate for animals on their behalf, because things aren't getting any better for them. It means being nimble and finding the right opportunities to speak up for them. Speaking of the election, the four-week delay to October 17 presents to us a unique opportunity. Opinions on whether or not to delay the election are split, both between the parties and amongst the public. A poll conducted by New Zealand Herald with Kantar found that 60% of voters favoured a delay. There's been a lot of debate around the change of the election date. There's been a lot of debate around the change of the election date, 
but a definite bonus is it gives us more time to campaign for a change for chickens and you more time to contact the parties and your local candidates. We want to send a strong message to the politicians that hens must be freed from cages. Learn more about how you can get involved by heading to safe.org.nz. Moving on from the election, there's been reports in recent weeks that calf corpses could go uncollected on farms due to a drop in leather prices. The treatment of bobby calves in the dairy industry is a contentious topic. Of course, for a dairy cow to produce milk, she has to be impregnated. To be able to collect the cow's milk though, it's not really ideal to have thousands of hungry baby calves hanging around. So they're considered a waste product and discarded accordingly. They're killed often only a few days old. That's the reality of the dairy industry. There isn't really a way around it. There's lots of talk of farmers finding other uses for those calves, but generally speaking, the status quo is when calves are born, they're taken away from their mothers shortly afterwards. For years, companies in the pelts industry have collected dead calves for free and sold their skins for calf leather. But now that international leather prices are at their lowest since 1976, Farmers have been told they'll have to pay to have their calves taken away. They of course don't want to do this. Burial of dead calves on densely populated dairy farms isn't really an ideal solution either. Burial brings with it a range of environmental problems and farmers will quickly run out of space. The Otago Daily Times last week reported that hundreds of thousands of dead calves are at risk of being left uncollected on farms and there's already signs that the dairy industry is reaching a tipping point. Taranaki locals last week stumbled across a gravel pit where likely a couple of dozen calves had been dumped. It's unclear how long they'd been sitting in this pit, which is a collection point for a local tannery. But reports from locals suggest that normally there's only half a dozen or so corpses there at any given time. An unknown passerby took issue with one of the locals who took photos of the pit. Likely they were one of the farmers who dumps calves at the pit. They said, it's just the price of dairy. As if to say, this is just business as usual. Well, yeah, you're right. That is the price of dairy. Calves have to be killed so the rest of us can collect their mother's milk. The dairy industry have been successful in framing this issue as some kind of a crisis for farmers. The Ministry for Primary Industries has been called in to try and negotiate a compromise over the leather price issue. Guy Trafford from interest.co.nz, whose previous writings would suggest he's no ally to the animal rights movement, put it best by saying that actually... The services established to collect bobby calves from farms sanitised an unpleasant practice. By removing it from farmers' hands and by putting an economic value on calves, somehow made the practice more palatable. Economic returns have always trumped good sense, he said, and now practices that shouldn't be condoned have become deeply embedded. The rest of his article goes on to other ways that farmers can exploit those animals, like breeding bobby calves that can be reared for meat, which is basically the status quo with extra steps. There's no getting around the reality of the dairy industry. To produce milk, dairy cows have to be impregnated, and the resulting calves have to be dealt with, either by slaughter or other forms of exploitation. That's the real price of dairy. Next on the show, we chat with Dr Melanie Joy. Melanie is a psychologist, relationship coach and communication specialist. She's the world's leading expert on the psychology of eating animals and the psychology of veganism. 
She's the award-winning author of six books and founding president of the charitable organisation Beyond Carnism. So welcome, Melanie, to the show. Uh, glad to finally have you here. Yes, I'm really, I'm glad to be. I'm glad to be there. I would love to be there in person, um, but that's not possible right now. But I love <laughs> New Zealand and uh, have been really wanting to go back for a long time now. Yeah, hopefully you can come visit again soon, whenever that will be. Whenever that will be. What a lot of people will probably be familiar with in terms of your work will be your work around carnism. To start things off, what is carnism? So carnism is the invisible belief system that conditions people to, to eat certain animals. It's uh, essentially the opposite of veganism. Now, we, we tend to assume that only vegans and vegetarians follow a belief system when it comes to eating animals. But the only reason that people learn to um, eat pigs but not dogs, for example, is because they do follow a belief system when it comes to eating animals. So when eating animals is not a necessity, which is true for many people in the world today, then it's a choice. And choices always stem from beliefs. But Carnism is an invisible belief system, and that is largely because it's, it's a dominant system. That means it is so widespread that its, it's tenets, it's, you know, the beliefs that go along with this and the practices are simply seen as a given rather than a choice. You know, it's woven through the very structure of society to shape norms, laws, beliefs, behaviors, etc. And carnism is, it's embraced by all of the major social institutions from the family to the state. So when people study nutrition, for example, they're essentially studying carnistic nutrition. Um, But what's really important to understand about carnism is that it is not only a dominant widespread belief system. It's also a violent system, which vegans obviously know. Um, But why this is relevant is because systems such as carnism, it's essentially an oppressive system, um, are organized around, they're antithetical to our core values, everybody's core values, essentially. Studies have shown that people around the world share the same core values of compassion and justice, caring and fairness. Carnism runs counter to these core values. Most people would never willingly um, support an industry that slaughters you know, more animals in a day than the total number of people killed in all wars throughout history. And that causes the, the level of extensive violence that carnism does. Most people are, are very uncomfortable with the idea of innocent animals being harmed. And yet most people participate in carnism. And so the violence inherent in carnism, the oppression is so counter, contrary to what most people would be comfortable with, that carnism needs to use a set of defense mechanisms. These are psychological defense mechanisms that essentially distort people's perceptions so that they disconnect from their natural empathy for animals and end up acting against their values, against their own interests, and against the interests of animals, obviously, and the planet, without even realizing what they're doing. So so many vegans, as soon as they say, I'm vegan, they come up against this wall of defenses, you know? Like, all you have to do is say, I'm vegan, and all of a sudden, you know, you're hearing, don't tell me that you'll ruin my meal, you know? Or you're getting all of these negative stereotypes projected onto you. This is because carnism it becomes internalized. People, this, this mentality 
is so widespread and people don't even realize that they're doing it. They, they have internalized this defensive mentality of carnism so that they end up resisting the very information that would get them outside the carnistic box that they don't even know that they're in. So I can talk a little bit more about carnistic defenses and what this means to, to vegans, but that's a, a, a very, you know, that's a kind of an overview of carnism. I'm smirking because, I mean, uh, it's not because it's funny, but because it's so relatable. As soon as you mentioned the year of vegan to someone else, I, I know what you mean. Would, would you say that's, I mean, it sounds a little bit like cognitive dissonance, kind of, like when someone's confronted with information that disturbs their deeply held belief. Is that, is that part of it? It is absolutely part of it. So cognitive dissonance is the internal discomfort that we feel when our values and our behaviors are misaligned, are not aligned, right? So most people care, carry these values of caring and, and justice or fairness. And at the same time, most people contribute to an industry that is is completely, is, is essentially cruel and unfair and unjust. So absolutely. What's important for vegans to recognize is that these carnistic defenses, so many vegans get incredibly frustrated because they, they're just hit with this wall of it, not just defensiveness, but irrationality on top of it. It's like, you know, it, what carnism does is it distorts people's perceptions so that they're not thinking and communicating rationally, but they believe that they are. And carnism uses two different types of, of defenses. Carnism it's structured like all oppressive systems, racism, patriarchy, classism, and, and so on. And I can talk about that a little bit later. In order to keep itself alive, carnism, like other oppressive systems, it essentially needs to ensure that the system, carnism, remains more powerful or stronger than the counter system that challenges that, and that's veganism. And so what carnism does is it uses two types of defenses. One type of defense distorts people's perceptions of meat, eggs, dairy, and farmed animals. And it basically, I call these primary defenses, right? So it makes people believe these primary defenses basically make people believe that eating animals is the right thing to do. So let me give you an example of this. It's uh, this primary defense would one primary defense would be abstraction. Carnism causes us to see farmed animals as abstractions, lacking any individuality or personality of their own. So we learn to believe that a pig is a pig and all pigs are the same. We recognize that dogs have personalities and individuality and, and you know would never want to harm dogs for that reason, one of those reasons, but we don't feel that same way about pigs. So that's an example of a primary defense. Secondary defenses. Let me give you another example of a primary defense. We learn to believe that in what I call the three ends of justification, that eating animals is normal, natural, and necessary. Secondary defenses distort people's perceptions of veganism, the vegan movement, and vegans. Secondary defenses, um, you know, while primary defenses are designed to validate carnism, to teach us to believe that eating animals is the right thing to do. Secondary defenses are designed to invalidate veganism. They make us believe that not eating animals is the wrong thing to do. And the way that secondary defenses do this is by distorting our perceptions of the vegan movement as a whole. So people learn to think of veganism or the vegan movement as not a movement. And if they see that vegan, the vegan movement is really, no, it's just a trend. Veganism is just a trend of vegan ideology. 
So we learn to believe that not eating animals is abnormal, unnatural, and unnecessary. It's the opposite of what I just said before. And distorting our perceptions of vegans. And this is probably the most common way that secondary defenses get manifested. So people basically learn to believe in a whole host of negative stereotypes about vegans. And this is a form of shooting the messenger. If you shoot the messenger, you don't have to take seriously the implications of their message. So for example, we learn to believe that vegans are biased every time they challenge the bias of the dominant culture. We learn to believe that vegans are overly emotional, animal-loving sentimentalists. I'm sure you've heard this before, right? So you're just overreacting, right? And I mean, and this, this distortion, this stereotype has actually been used to discredit or to an attempt to invalidate people who have challenged oppressive systems throughout history. It was projected onto uh, slavery abolitionists in the 19th century, or uh, 20th century, and 19th and 20th centuries, or the suffragists. Um, when somebody is overly emotional, what that means is that they're not rational enough, and somebody who's not rational is not worth listening to. And so this immediately silences vegans who would you know, be speaking out to raise awareness. And frankly, when you think about our emotions of grief and moral outrage at the atrocity that is carnism, you can recognize that these are legitimate emotional responses to a global atrocity. Much more concerning is the widespread carnistic zombification and numbing that marks the dominant culture. You've spoken a little bit about that friction between vegans and non-vegans, and we can speak a little bit more about how carnism impacts relationships in a moment but you touched on a bit earlier about you know other isms sexism racism so how how is carnism similar to to those other isms in my more recent book called powerarchy understanding the psychology of oppression for social transformation i talk about how all of these systems are structurally similar and so basically what i did is i expanded on my research that i did uh, for carnism when i was a doctoral student and uh, applied that uh, to and expanded on it to, to other isms as well um, and also drew on other people's research for that so all of these systems are structured similarly, and they all use the same kinds of psychological defense mechanisms to keep themselves alive. Most importantly, they all stem from the very same mentality. This is the belief in a hierarchy of moral worth. In other words, we learn to believe all of these systems, and by the way, I'm talking about oppressive systems now, but this also applies to abusive systems. Um, which is a system between two people or an abusive workplace, for example, all of these systems reflect the belief in a hierarchy of moral worth, that some individuals or groups are more worthy of moral consideration. This just means being treated with respect of having integrity practice towards them than others. That is the core belief that underlies all oppressive systems and all abusive systems and dynamics. And even though the experience of each set of victims will always be unique, I think it's very important not to say that racism is the same as sexism. It's not. Um, the mentality that drives these problems is the same. This mentality that I call the powerarchical mentality, is it reflects and reinforces a relational dysfunction, essentially a dysfunction in how we relate 
Um, when, when we look at the world and we look at oppression and we look at some of these major problems in the world and also in our personal lives, these problems, you know, whether it's animal exploitation, climate change, racism, sexism, um, you know, political polarization, these problems share a common denominator. And this common denominator is relational dysfunction. And that is a dysfunction in how we relate to other individuals as social groups, to other animals, to the planet, and even to ourselves. It's such a, you know, overwhelming power structure, isn't it? And it's, um, I mean, you've explained it really well how, you know, carnism is, you know, one of the dominating forces in the world. How do we move beyond carnism? Well, I mean, that's that's a great question. Um, so the way that, I mean, I, I think on a, on a meta level, you know, the question of how do we move beyond oppression and how do we move beyond abuse, right, is relational dysfunction is a common denominator among these. So building relational literacy is a fundamental way to transform not only our interpersonal lives and our movement as vegans and the groups that we're a part of, but also our world. Relational literacy is the understanding of an ability to practice healthy ways of relating. And the good news is that the formula for a healthy relationship or a healthy interaction, which is a mini relationship, is exactly the same, regardless as to what role we're occupying. Whether you're communicating with a cashier in the grocery store, you're relating to your companion animal, to the pig you're choosing not to eat, um, to your life partner as a member of a social group, and so forth. The formula for healthy ways, a healthy relationship is the same. And that is practicing integrity, meaning practicing the core values of compassion and justice, asking yourself, does this behavior, does this communication, does this choice, dietary choice, we'll say, reflect integrity? Does it reflect the way that I would want to be treated if I were that other individual on the receiving end of it? Um, does so it's a reflecting it's a practicing integrity honoring dignity meaning respecting the inherent worth of the individual you're relating to and this leads to a greater sense of connection that's the formula practicing integrity and honoring dignity and this leads to connection the opposite is what a dysfunctional dynamic looks like violating integrity harming dignity, and that creates greater disconnection. So whether you're relating to your companion animal, to the chicken you're choosing not to eat as a white person relating to a person of color, as a man relating to a woman, so on and so forth, or to yourself, this formula applies. Now, more like looking at, you know, strategically, how do we move beyond carnism? Um, One of the things that I recommend, and I have, you know, my... Uh, in Beyond Beliefs, which is my a book I wrote recently for vegans and vegetarians and, and meat eaters or non-vegans in relationships, um, I talk about various ways to, to navigate these problematic relational dynamics. Um, what I'm going to talk about applies to that, but it also applies to kind of more strategically as we're advocating, you know, to others to move beyond carnism. 
I always recommend that we um, kind of stop seeing this dichotomous view as vegans. We stop holding this dichotomous view of either you're vegan and you're part of the solution or you're not vegan and you're part of the problem. I think that gets us into, um, you know, that prevents like 99% of the population from supporting a cause that needs all the help it can get really. Um, I recommend that we instead ask others to become what I call vegan allies. A vegan ally is a person who's not fully vegan yet themselves, but who is nevertheless a supporter of veganism and vegans. And the reason that I recommend this is because number one, many people are just not ready or willing to go fully vegan. And we don't want to prevent them from helping transform carnism. Some of the people who have done the most for carnism to transform carnism in my own experience are not vegans. You know, there are journalists who interview me and reach sometimes hundreds of thousands of people with this message. Um, some of the philanthropists who donate to my organization beyond carnism, we run hundred percent on donations um, and, and are, are not vegan and, but they really love what we do and they want to help promote veganism. You know, for a lot of listeners, you may have people in your life who you're really frustrated with because they're not vegan and you keep thinking, what's wrong with you? Um, however, these people may in fact be vegan allies. You know, somebody who gets it, who supports you, who sees you, who values you as a vegan and helps you to be that vegan activist that you are by being a support to you in your life. And I, I would also recommend that we not ask people to quote unquote go vegan, but rather to ask people to be as vegan as possible. So, and the reason for this is because number one, nobody can be more vegan than what's possible for them. Number two, when you say go vegan, so often people are like, oh my God, I can't do that. You know, it's up to them to decide what's doable for them. When you ask someone to be as vegan as possible, you are much less likely to get a defensive reaction from them. What are they going to say? No, I'm not going to be as vegan as possible. Well, then you're, you're already being as vegan as possible then. There's, there's much less defensiveness. And frankly, if everyone in the world were as vegan as possible, the world would become vegan fairly quickly. It's interesting. Um, you're the, the second person I've interviewed in a row who has advocated for a similar message in the sense that it's important to have vegan allies and other allies in this movement, and not just this movement, but other movements as well, whether that be human rights, gender, uh, sexual orientation. If you're standing on this island by yourself, you're not going to have nearly as much impact as you would if you start building those connections with other allies who may not necessarily be vegan, but as you say, have similar values and, and support that you work that you do. So speaking about Beyond Beliefs, what prompted you to to write the book? Yeah, in my experience, um, you know, I was traveling around the world for, I don't know, at this point, maybe six years, and I was giving talks, meeting thousands of vegans all over the world. And I was hearing the same story over and over again, which was becoming vegan was like one of the most empowering choices they had ever made. And they quickly, you know, their, their sense of inspiration, vegan sense of inspiration quickly turned to shock and horror when they recognized that their communication and relationships were breaking down. 
because of their veganism. So, um, you know, so and research shows that people who, you know, have fulfilling connected relationships fare better in pretty much every aspect of life. They live longer, they're less risk of, you know, reduced risk of various diseases and um, mental health issues. They're, they have greater career success and so on and so forth. So I was, as a person who had been working in the space of relationships for a long time myself as well, that's sort of the other hat that I was wearing and a person who was very active in the vegan movement, you know, I kind of, I brought these two parts of myself together and realized that, you know, it was really time for vegans to be provided with um, the tools that they need to navigate these problematic uh, relational dynamics and, and communication dynamics, because there's just so much suffering, uh, much of which is actually unnecessary. Um, you know, people really have the tools to understand and, and navigate these dynamics. There's just so much suffering that vegans were experiencing. And, you know, this problem of relationship and communication breakdown was just siphoning out a tremendous amount of energy from the movement. It's, it's like exhausting. I mean, people were are, have been just burning out, completely exhausted from dealing with friends, family, colleagues, acquaintances, strangers that they meet at parties who just, it's, it's, you know, it felt like just a constant relational assault on them as, as vegans. I've definitely, um, I've spoken to one or two former vegans who actually raise one of those those points that as being a part of the reason why that they're no longer vegan and and one of them was they said you know I was sick of feeling like an outsider and that really struck me because I could understand that I mean obviously I'm still vegan and there are other reasons you know I didn't I disagreed with but you know respectfully I disagreed with but that one I kind of got you know I was sick of feeling like an outsider I personally don't feel like I have that problem but I know a lot of people do and I've definitely felt like that at times uh, within a social setting and it can range from comments that are kind of packaged up as a joke you know are making you know slight fun of the vegan but in a kind of a fun friendly way all the way to just outright disrespect so what advice or anyone who's listening now what advice would you give to help both vegans and non-vegans to communicate better because no doubt you know veganism and um, more broadly plant-based diets they're mainstream now so i mean i'm sure you know just about every non-vegan has at least one vegan friend so you know for all of us what advice would you give that would help us all to communicate better? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, first of all, I want to just point out that this problem of relationship and communication breakdown, it's not unique to vegans and non-vegans. It's, it happens to people. You know, most of us, I, I always say this um, because it's true. Most of us have to learn complicated geometry that we'll probably never need to use. And we don't get a single lesson in how to communicate effectively and be healthy relational beings, you know? So most people kind of muddle through and struggle with their relationships and communications. When you put this extra, you know, layer on of veg, non-veg relationships, um, you know, it, it makes it even more complicated because you bring in a certain psychology that is, um, you know, it, it can be challenging to navigate around. I actually should take a moment and say that we um, at Beyond Carnism, we are uh, soon going to be offering a, a workshop for vegans to attend with non-vegans. Um, and it's the first of a kind. And it's I'll be offering this workshop. So you basically can come and bring the non-vegan in your life. It's virtual, of course. Um, and I will talk about this in much greater detail and about how you can understand each other and how you can work 
to communicate and relate more effectively. Most important is to remember that underneath your difference of ideology, veganism and non-veganism, um, is a relationship between people. That's where the issue, that's where your focus needs to be. When you learn to, to relate in a healthy way, um, it, you can talk about and communicate in a healthy way. You can communicate about anything without arguing. And if your relationship is not, uh, or you're not relating or communicating in a healthy way, you can't talk about anything without arguing. I mean, you have vegans who are arguing with each other and they're totally on the same page about 99% of the issue and they're still fighting with each other and, and in a really toxic way. So, um, I think it's really important for um, vegans and non-vegans both to understand the psychology of carnism because that psychology does distort perceptions and it makes it hard to have a rational conversation. And vegans very easily buy into this conversation, buy into these distortions when they're having the conversation. Oh, am I too sensitive? Am I just being pushy? Am I just a picky eater? You know, so really understanding this in Beyond Beliefs, I have a chapter about how carnism affects relationships for vegans and non-vegans both to read. And I, in this chapter, I say, think of carnism as the third wheel in your relationship. Your relationship is a triangle. It's a relationship between you, the non-vegan, and carnism. Carnism is there present, hovering over both of you, causing you to see each other as opponents when you're really naturally allies. And this is the way it distorts your perceptions and makes that happen. In my book, I also have scripts that you can photocopy because it's hard to find the words yourself sometimes. Dear non-vegan, I have a letter. Dear non-vegan, this is the world, the way the world looks through my eyes. This is what I would love you to know about me. So hopefully those will be useful tools. And really just remember that when you are communicating about veganism, about you know, whatever else, Keep your focus on, you know, having a healthy process, a healthy processes, you know, communicating in a healthy way. Make your goal to share the truth of your experience, your thoughts and your feelings, not to convert the other person um, because they will become resistant. So you can say, for example, listen, I'd really love to share information about veganism with you not to change you and make you vegan, but so you understand me and you know what the world looks like through my eyes. Because if you don't understand this, it's going to be really hard for us to get along. You've been listening to Animal Matters. This podcast is brought to you by Safe for Animals, New Zealand's leading animal rights organisation and produced by myself, Will Appleby. Make sure you subscribe to stay across Animal Matters on whatever your favourite podcast platform is. If you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners to find the show. If you want to support the show, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash animal matters. Until next time, kakite anō.